You're listening to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also podcasting as part of the TJFM network. That's TWJ.FM. Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community and around the state. Today we'll hear from Richmond-based journalist Peter Galaska, plus an interview with Lorenzo Dickerson of the Town Film Festival. But right now, we're joined here in the studio by Giles Morris, Elliot Robinson, and Charlotte Woods of Charlottesville Tomorrow. Charlotte Woods and Elliot Robinson have just published an article about Charlottesville's first police civilian review board. Could you start by describing what a civilian review board does? What the board will be doing is they will be reviewing complaints that uh, citizens in the Charlottesville Arbor Marl community have about the Charlottesville Police Department, and their duties will also be able to look at some policy issues and other sort of policing issues, and they would make recommendations to the city council about the next steps to take. They will become another arm of city government in a way that uh, hopefully will help the community have a better relationship with the police force here. That is uh, one of their goals. Could you all give us a timeline of the Civilian Review Board? In a way, things started with August 12th, but in a way they didn't. There was a lot of issues that were under the surface that came to a head in the aftermath of August 12th. There have been communities in Charlottesville that felt that they have received entirely too much attention from the police department. There are people that felt that they couldn't just walk down the street without being uh, stopped by the police or couldn't go to certain parts of town. They seemed like they were out of place. And then when we got to August 12th, there was the rally, and it seemed that the police weren't doing much to control the crowds and control the white supremacists who came to town. And then the year after, when we had the anniversary, there were a lot of police officers who were controlling the crowd, but it was largely residents and protesters That also led into people hearing, finally, the concerns of people in neighborhoods of Charlottesville are feeling that they've gotten entirely too much attention negatively from the police. And this led to the city council passing a resolution to create a police civilian review board to look at what's going on in the city as far as policing and hear the complaints about issues they've had with the police. Yes. So then after the December 2017 resolution that was signed, uh, it took a couple months by June 4th, 2018 is when the current CRB, whose terms just expired uh, this week, was established. And they've spent this past year drafting bylaws and an ordinance and recommendations to be passed to city council. This CRB's job is to set things up for the next CRB. The other thing I think that's important to note is just that, you know, after A12, Chief Thomas was fired and let go. And then there was a search for a new police chief and Chief Brackney arrived right before the one year anniversary. So her introduction to the community was this joint command force that was preparing, over preparing for um, the anniversary. And, you know, things got heated even on their community listening tour when they were talking about what their plans were. I remember at Mount Zion, Harold Foley going right after her in one of the first meetings just saying, look, we know you're not for us and we don't trust you. We don't care if you're new. And I think that the fact that we ended up with this process that was voluntary initiated by the city is unique, right? I mean, oftentimes CRBs are 
court mandated or federally mandated because of consent decrees after something really terrible has happened, like Freddie Gray in Baltimore. And, you know, talking to experts who around the country have been around these processes, like it's always combative in the first year. The fact that we've gotten to this place so far seems like a real victory for the community. I think there's a perception in the public that if there's kind of a will to, to do community policing and then this voluntary structure being put in place um, that the police department agrees to and the community agrees to that, well, you should just be able to figure it out. And the reality is you have a group of activists representing neighborhoods that have felt burnt by the police for decades. And I think trying to get a group of people to actually move the conversation forward where there's some modicum of trust on each side to go into a collaboration together, because that's really what this is. It's not mandated. Mm -hmm. And I think it's definitely a big positive constructive step that the city is taking towards reestablishing trust and bettering the relationships, but also holding people accountable. And um, going forward, everyone seems pretty committed to making sure that this can work. What are some of the highlights or important things to know about what's being written in these bylaws? Now, this is all pending approval by council. Depending on what the applicant pool looks like, if possible, they would like to see one member who lives in affordable housing and then four members who have experience with advocacy work. And they also want to have the hiring of a professional oversight staff, somebody who can be liaison and coordinate between all the different parties involved and make sure that everyone's in compliance with the bylaws. And one interesting thing that our CRB could have if its bylaws passed in its current form will be policy review when there are a series of issues with police officers and the community surrounding them. It's not that the individual officers are doing these things on their own. There is some sort of internal policy that is leading to those decisions being made on the streets. Could you talk a little bit about the relationship between neighbors and the police in some of these rapidly changing neighborhoods, like the example in your article of 10th and Page? Yes. So one of the people we spoke with for our article was Harold Foley. He is a community organizer at Legal Aid Justice Center. He's been very supportive of this board throughout the process. So he was talking about how as these developments are coming in and more and more people are moving in, they don't live in the, they haven't lived in the community very long. They aren't familiar with who's who or what's what. And so sometimes they'll kind of have a knee jerk reaction and call the cops. By the time the cops get there a few minutes later, maybe the person that they thought was suspicious is probably gone. And then Harold said, you know, a lot of times they'll just be stopping somebody who quote fits the description. And that description is usually that they're not white. And one of the civilian review board members that we had, she lives in Tempted Pace and she sees this firsthand of how much the neighborhood has changed and people just don't talk to their neighbors anymore. And one of her ideas is that the community has to have events where they all come together and the police also need to do that so everyone can see each other as the level as a, of a human being. I think most people would agree and say that, that there's been a pretty militarized approach to policing our low-income neighborhoods and people don't forget that. What are some specific police policies that the CRB would like to tackle or that you hear about a lot from community members? I mean, I think stop and frisk policing is always right at the sp point of the spear with this kind of stuff. It's like if the police can hear about something suspicious and then ID a suspect and search them based on that tip, then there's, there's too much that can go wrong. You don't have to do that if you're police. You don't have to be anticipating crime 
and then using your own judgment to figure out who you're anticipating is going to commit that crime. Because we all know that leads to profiling and it leads to young black men on the street getting arrested disproportionately. The data for the stop and frisk was something that the CRB wanted earlier on when they were trying to get their footing and figure out exactly what the bylaws would be and what they could and could not do. And there were privacy issues of why they couldn't release that data to the CRB at that moment. Hopefully, once everything is settled and the new CRB is in place and they keep their ability to review policy and look at data, this conversation will come back up and they will be able to look at what's been going on as far as stop and frisk in the city. The CRB is going to be able to serve as like a vessel for people to discuss interactions they've had with police that might need to be looked at, investigated, and spotting, you know, patterns and trends that maybe need to be looked into. And it's the CRB is more like of an advisory type of thing, but they do say that they do want to be able to conduct investigations with the oversight staff member on an as-needed basis if there's been a, an investigation that they that the CPD has already done that they deemed is, you know, maybe not handled timely enough or was unsatisfactory. What can Charlottesville citizens do to support the Civilian Review Board or get more involved in the issue of policing in Charlottesville? Definitely sign up to be on the next board. That's the first thing they can do and to come to meetings. That's what public uh, comment sessions are, are for. So in terms of like next steps and moving forward, it is possible that the ordinance and bylaws can pop up on a agenda items for city council sometime in August. And when I spoke with council member uh, Heather Hill, she was saying she's optimistic. She can't speak for all of council, but she's saying that she thinks that the next CRB could be up and established by the end of the year. You know, we need police. And it even sounds weird coming out of my mouth when I say that. In, in the context of the discussion, but the, the police are entering into this conversation voluntarily. The community needs to meet them halfway um, at some level and also realize that, you know, many neighborhoods really never have to deal with friction with the police. And if you live in one of those neighborhoods, that doesn't mean you should be oblivious to what's happening. Uh, it means you should actually get involved and understand and stand up for your neighbors in other neighborhoods. Thank you so much, as always, for being here. We really appreciate it. And we're looking forward to reading what comes out this week. That was Giles Morris, Elliot Robinson, and Charlotte Woods of Charlottesville Tomorrow. Find out more and read the latest at charlottesvilletomorrow.org. listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the TJ FM network. TWJ.FM. WTJU and TJ FM are both a service of the University of Virginia. Opinions expressed in the show are, of course, just that, opinions, not the positions of the University of Virginia. We turn now to our regular correspondent on state news and politics, Peter Galaska. He's a journalist based in the Richmond area. Well, we turn now to state news, and as we do each week, we check in with our Richmond-based journalist, Peter Galaska. Peter, good morning. Good morning. So the General Assembly has a special session coming up on gun safety legislation. Uh, Ralph Northam called this after the uh, Virginia Beach Municipal Building shooting uh, a few several weeks ago. Um, what is coming up in this session? Well, I mean, the um, session is July 9th, um, and so it will be it's called, especially by Governor Northam, after the May 31st shootings of 12 people at a Virginia Beach municipal building. 
And um, there's several things going on here. First off is that uh, gun control has been languishing all kinds of proposals for years because it's always been shot down in the General Assembly, either in committee or by vote. And so there really hasn't been any meaningful gun control legislation in years. And um, that's largely due to Republicans backing more rural-minded candidate uh, uh, voters. But on the table now, because of that, are several things. Uh, plans perhaps to, bump, to, to ban bump stocks, which are ways to, to get a, a semi-automatic rifle to shoot almost automatically. This was used in Las Vegas during a, a massive shooting there. Uh, to ban large magazines of more than 10 rounds, which that was the case in the uh, Virginia Beach shooting. The, the man used handguns with a very, very large uh, capacity uh, bullet, uh, magazine. And also, the man in Virginia Beach used sound suppressors, which made people not really understand when the shooting was going on that it might have been a nail gun. It didn't sound like a gun. So there might be restrictions, there might be restrictions on that. Um, AR-type weapons like AR-15s, um, things like that, uh, may be restricted to some degree. Um, these are assault rifles designed for the military. Um, and also, um, there are a couple other things. One is to make sure that people report uh, if their guns are, are, are lost or stolen within 24 hours, this has been backed by uh, Metropolitan Police officers for years. And um, and the last thing is like to, to make allow the police to remove the guns of people who are deemed to be at extreme risk, mostly because of mental illness. So this is a big package, and uh, there, there's political hay to be made of both both sides. It's a raft of of bills that are being introduced. What if anything, would make this different from them being shot down every other year? I mean, we've had other tragedies in Virginia. This isn't the first one. Well, it does two things. First off, a lot of polls show that most Virginians favor more gun control. It doesn't say exactly what type of gun control. Um, it appears that, um, you know, Northam, who you know, suffered some political scandals early in the year with the blackface issue in his yearbook from years ago, is using this um, as a way to get momentum for himself and for Democrats who will be, you know, running in office uh, come November. Republicans are saying this is a political show and it's a, you know, it's deflect criticism against that. Of course, they, they want to make sure that they can retain as many seats as they can because they held, you know, really small majorities in both, both houses of, of, the, of the General Assembly. There have been a number of demonstrations and events and conferences uh, among the GOP lawmakers and also among Democrats and Democratic supporters. One of those GOP ones was in Fredericksburg. There was a tape that emerged of, of a bunch of lawmakers talking about some of these gun measures. And one of the lawmakers uh, commented, it was quoted in the Washington Post, saying, they want our state. What do you make of that kind of quote? Well, I mean, it's kind of a thing you're seeing because of the, uh, the hard right GOP which is led on, they're mostly from rural areas, by the way, not all of them, but many of them. And I've, I've lived in a rural area before, and their guns are more accepted because people hunt and things like that. But it's kind of morphed into a real Second Amendment rights thing. And so some people are saying, you know, they want our state, they want our guns. And this is sort of a hot button dog whistle kind of approach they're trying to use to get support. When, with dog whistle, you mean the, the way they, the, the construction of they versus our? Yes, exactly. I mean, they, they meaning uh, Democrats and gun control people, are trying to take our state away from us. Mm -hmm. 
Well, let's talk a little bit. Let's shift gears and talk about what our state is as far as Virginia. There's a new report from the Weldon Cooper Center for Demographics at UVA uh, looking at what our state actually means and where people live and, and where they're going to be living in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, kind of projecting populations uh, going out. And I'll tell you one stat of all this that was amazing to me was that if you take the Northern Virginia, Richmond Metro, and Hampton Roads Metro, the population of those three metros is 70% of Virginia's population. But what else is in this report? Well, it's interesting. This is a nice this is a nice segue from the gun control thing because it really illustrates the urban versus uh, rural dynamic and tension that's been building for years and, and according to this report will only grow even stronger and more diverse. You're seeing that as these cities grow, they tend to be um, more diverse. They attract more people from outside the state and they tend to be more liberal. And of course, the, the ballwark uh, outside of a few you know, suburban strongholds like Hanover County, for example, and maybe to some extent Loudoun County, a, a lot of the, the base of the conservative GOP people is in the rural areas, and uh, they're just going to lose population. Another dynamic, which is interesting, is that the state's going to get older. Uh, by 2020, 15% of the state will be over 65, and um, they're going to be lower birth rates because millennials are not planning on having as many children. I don't know where that, that kind of is a contrarian thing. I don't know where that's going to play out. But still, the rural-urban divide is going to get just stronger and stronger. You've got these three major metros and then a few sort of outlying metros, Charlottesville, Roanoke, Harrisonburg. What's the rest of the state? What's the future look like for the rest of the state? Well, it's a good question because, I mean, you know, at, um, the jobs, the new, the new you know, IT-type jobs, uh, there's some that are planned for rural areas. I know there's a big data center plan for the eastern shore, and there's some down in south side Virginia. Um, but, you know, most of the new new jobs the, are, are probably going to go to northern Virginia or the suburbs of Richmond or Hampton Roads or maybe Charlottesville. And um, it's just like a lot of the areas are showing some out-migration in the rural areas. Younger people are moving away. There's less to do. So, I don't know. It seems like it's, uh, they're not going to vanish, of course, but... Um, they're going to lose influence in politically, economically, and culturally in every way. Sort of turning on that a little bit, the uh, General Assembly elections are this November, uh, both State Senate and State House. They're all up for re-election or, or up for election. The Virginia Public Access Project did a little infographic looking at how many candidates on the Democratic side, how many candidates on the Republican side are even running. Uh, all, the, all the districts where the party has even gotten somebody to, to run. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Democrats are basically at a high watermark. There's more Democrats running for more seats this year than ever, and the Republicans are at kind of a trough this year. What's that mean? It's, it's sort of an interesting graphic and study by BPAP. You know, more Democrats are running, whereas some years ago, to go back 15 to 20 years, it was sort of a given that Republicans would just own certain areas for the simple reason that nobody would oppose them. And, and, and except in the primary, where one Republican would run against another Republican, and that tended to spread more of a hard, hardline ideological thing, because there was no Democratic alternative. Now what you're saying, which is amazing, once again, due to the changing demographics of the state and the growing urban and suburban uh, voting di- districts, for example, in 2011 in the House of, de- of Delegates, the uh, Democrats ran 54 people. This year, they're run- running 91, which is a big increase. And the GOP, for example, in 2009, ran 83 uh, candidates for that House. And this year, they're only running 75. So this sort of almost implies that the Democrats are going to sweep the General Assembly. And that's going to be a big change for the state. 
It, it seems like a wave of candidates, in, in Virginia anyway, it tends to be correlated with a wave of elected candidates. I mean, you know, 2011 was that Tea Party wave that saw pretty large Republican majorities sweep into both houses. Now we've got almost comparable numbers of candidates coming in on the Dem side. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting to bring that up because it's both, in both cases you could make an argument that they were sort of reactionary. In many ways, the Tea Party movement, I think, was um, a reaction to Barack Obama being president. Because a lot of, um, you know, white people were not used to having an African-American president. I mean, that just was kind of beyond them. And, um, and likewise, um, a lot of Democrats are really angered at Donald Trump and, and his managed style management and his policies, which seem to be very chaotic and erratic. And that's really sparked. I mean, you saw it in, in the congressional races last November where you had three women Democrats seized in some important districts. So it, it just seems to see if the, if the momentum can keep going. All right, Peter. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, okay. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in Richmond. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Teej FM Network. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. Today we have a special interview with Lorenzo Dickinson of the 5th Annual Moppentown Film Festival the Maupintown Film Festival is a free event at the Jefferson School African American Heritage Center in Charlottesville, Virginia. The festival runs July 12th through the 14th and focuses on celebrating and sharing films of African American history and culture with the local community. Today, we're sitting down and talking with local filmmaker, founder of Maupintown Media, and organizer of the film festival, Lorenzo Dickerson. My name is Lorenzo Dickerson. Uh, I'm a filmmaker photographer here in the Charlottesville area, um, originally from Albemarle County. And can you tell me a little bit about the mission of the Town Film Festival? Um, it's really to, to highlight uh, little-known African-American stories that we don't often hear. Uh, we like to focus on a lot of Virginia stuff um, that we don't often uh, learn about in our schools or, or otherwise. Um, but then we also branch out nationwide and internationally uh, as well. So we um, we go for three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, every July, normally around the second week of July. So this, this year is the 12th through the 14th. We have speakers coming in. Uh, we have filmmakers. We've got a lot of films that we're showing as well. Every year the festival has a theme. Um, what's the theme this year? Back in the day, today and tomorrow is the theme. So uh, we're, we're highlighting films um, that showcase our history, um, but then also allow us to think more about our present as, as well as our future. Are there any films that you're particularly excited about or speakers? Yeah, um, quite a few, actually. Jordy Yeager, who is a Charlottesville native, he will be actually giving a presentation on racial covenants uh, in Charlottesville, the history of racial covenants, um, as well as he'll be showing a, a, a clip from the uh, oral history project that was done at the Jefferson School African American Heritage Center, which is uh, local African Americans that grew up here uh, in the area telling their stories about different, various different um, experiences. Uh, we have Dr. Andrew Call from uh, UVA coming to give a presentation based on his book. The presentation is about black beaches throughout the, the Southeast. 
We're showing a film called Silent Sam, which was done by students at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, uh, which is about the removal of the Silent Sam statue on their on their campus, the Confederate statue there. So yeah, we have quite quite a few films this year. Um, we have someone from the Booker T. Washington National Historic Site coming to give a presentation as well. So yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be a lot of fun. Looking forward to those for sure. What role would you say that the Charlottesville location plays in the festival? Well, I mean, we're really the, the, the only event that focuses on, on telling stories of African-American history and culture in central Virginia, in, in, in the Charlottesville area. Um, and that's why it's really important for it to be at the Jefferson School. This festival started five years ago in a small church near Keswick. We brought it to the Jefferson School. We thought that a good space for it um, is also more centrally located, centrally located so people can easily um, access it as well. Lorenzo, you are the founder of Mop and Town Media. Can you tell us a little bit about what else your company does? Yeah. So Mop and Town Media is photography and documentary filmmaking. So the documentary films have played in film festivals, broadcast on PBS. There are a couple of films that are coming out. The, the last couple of films, one was called Birdland. That showed at the uh, Central Library downtown back in February. That's actually about a family from the Keswick area that were enslaved. So they were property, and then directly after emancipation of slavery, they pulled their money together and purchased a lot of property. And the family still lives on that land today, right in that area, um, right near the former plantation. The film that I did before that was Albemarle's Black Classrooms, that tells the story of, of the small one- and two-room schoolhouses um, out in the rural parts of the county, massive resistance, passive resistance to school desegregation. And the newest film actually premieres at the Paramount Theater um, August 29th at 6 o'clock, so uh, you can get more information about that. But that's called Third Street Best Seats in the House. So it talks about the formerly segregated Third Street entrance at the Paramount through the, the eyes and experiences of those who, who were there at the time. And then let's talk a little bit about the history of Mop and Town Media. Where did that come from? Why did yeah. you decide to do it? Yeah. Well, the name itself comes from, so my, uh, my maternal grandmother, her maiden name is Moppin. So African-American Moppins are from Ivy. White Moppins are from Garth Road area. There used to be this place called Moppin Town. It was kind of in between the two wooded area now near Ivy and that's she would always tell me this story about going there in the summer where all these moppins would be and it was so fun and it was kind of this this mythical place growing up that you know she would tell me this story but I didn't have details about it but that's where the name comes from and then also Morgantown Road where um, Virginia L. Mary Elementary School is located now that was once called Moppintown Road. One thing you can really see through these stories is Sure, it's Charlottesville's history, but it's really your history as well. Yeah, the first the first film that I did um, was about my second great grandfather, and that's how I kind of got into it. We premiered it at the at the Jefferson School. Your festival does such a great job of showcasing these very relevant and unheard stories. Obviously, black media and black filmmakers have been heavily marginalized in mainstream media. Have you noticed any changes recently? Any satisfying changes? Um, as far as African American filmmakers, um, I mean, definitely. As you know, on a on a on a, a more popular national level, you have you know people like Jordan Peele and Ava DuVernay, Issa Rae, that are doing great great work. 
But locally, we have filmmakers here as well. And, you know, last year, even at, at Moppintown, we had uh, filmmaker and actor Tim Reed there speaking with us about his films. Um, people may know him, remember him from the sitcom Sister, Sister or WKRP in Cincinnati. We also had Karen Parsons, who Karen played uh, Hillary Banks on Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And now she makes children's films, animated films about African-American history. So, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of people there that, you know, some we may not even know about that are making films now, but we know them for, for other things. Lastly, what do you see for the future of Maupintown Media and the Maupintown Film Festival? Really growing the festival, having more people come in and, and being able to, to grow the festival and extend the, the time frame for it, getting more people interested in these, in these stories on a more regular basis, or so even possibly showing some, some other films from the festival throughout the remainder of the year, possibly. Um, as, and as far as Town Media, continuing to tell these stories via film, via photography as well, and, and bring these stories to light that people don't often hear about. Thanks so much, Lorenzo. I've really enjoyed sitting down and talking with you today. Before we wrap it up, can you just let us know where we can find more information about the film festival? If you go to uh, MoppintownFilmFestival.com, um, you can go there uh, to find out more information. You can see the full schedule for this year's events. Um, you can get tickets there as well. If you go to MoppinTown.com, that's M-A-U-P-I-N-T-O-W-N. Um, if you go there, you can find out more information about Moppintown Media, all the different documentary films as well. And, of course, stay tuned for, um, for Third Street, which will be uh, at the Paramount. That does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. Our theme song today, Geogia Beat by Morwen Alasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. Catch us at WTJU.net or our podcast home at TJFM 89.1. <laughs>